forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessica Crispin. And just a reminder, this podcast is supported solely by its listeners. So if you would like to become a supporter, please go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. In 2012, my friend Michael Scott Moore was abducted while he was in Somalia working as a reporter. Two and a half years later, he was released after a ransom was paid. Now he has published the book, The Desert and the Sea, which is not only a memoir of his experience as a hostage, but is also a work of reporting and history of the situation in Somalia and the piracy that goes on there. I wanted to talk to him not really about his experience as a hostage, which you can read about in the book and listen to in interviews in other venues, but about what comes after. What comes after when you come home? So here's Michael Scott Moore. I wanted to start talking about this idea of recovery, Mm -hmm. Uh, specifically about the part where, I mean, you mentioned that it was explained to you that you shouldn't necessarily think of yourself as having PTSD um, after, after you came home. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if we could start talking about who told you that, what the context was and what the reasoning was behind that. Sure. Uh, The guy who um, said that to me after, you know, being with me for several days, um, if not weeks, was the FBI psychologist who sees a lot of people who come back from captivity. Um, He's he's ex-military, so he's also seen a lot of guys uh, with combat stress. And um, he was by my side almost as soon as I landed in um, Nairobi, in fact, before I landed, I think. In other words, on my way out of Somalia, um, he got put on the plane. And he was talking to me about what I was going through before I even knew who he was. <laughs> so at some point, I'm like, who are you? But um, he, he turned out to be a psychologist and a very, a very good one, or at least a very um, sensitive one and and he seemed to know um what i was going to go through before i even went through it you know and um at some point i turned to him and said you know are are you here cuz i might have ptsd and he said we don't like to put a label on anything and that was his attitude the whole way through um he never if he diagnosed me with ptsd in those early weeks he certainly didn't tell me about it and then several months later um i I had spent a few, a few weeks with him on a daily basis because I was also debriefing with the FBI. And then I went for a few months afterwards without seeing a therapist, you know, on a regular basis at all. I could always call up Carl, this guy, uh, whenever I wanted to from Berlin, but um, I was not seeing anyone, a talk therapist on a weekly basis or anything like that. And so I said that to him. I said, the next time I was in Washington, I think I asked him, if that was a big deal. He said, you know what? Um, it's better not to pathologize it. He said, you're getting better and um, just let yourself. And that turned out to be really, really good advice in my case. Um, in other words, he avoided imposing a whole different layer of something 
that I had to had to uh, recover from because the actual trauma of being in Somalia was bad enough. Mm-hmm. And um, that that's really, really important. So he took away that cognitive level of, oh my God, I'm suffering from something. Mm-hmm. And what do you think sort of labeling it as PTSD would have done? I mean, I guess in both good and bad ways. Well, I, so I knew about PTSD before I went. I mean, I'd written about it, so I knew what some of the symptoms were. And I certainly had some of the symptoms, including hypervigilance. Um, I, so it was on my mind. It's not like it was completely away from my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think that if, if someone had treated me, and this is, this is just in my case. I know that in some cases, especially with combat stress, people need drugs, you know. Yeah. But uh, the, in, in my case, I can, I can see how stressing about this idea that I might have this condition called PTSD would have added more stress <laughs> to, to, uh, what, what was already, uh, you know, I was in bad shape. I was in, I was very skinny. I was uh, sitting on a lot of anger and all that had to be worked out in, in ways that weren't just mental and weren't just cognitive. Um, I had to get better physically too. Mm-hmm. And, um, all that stuff worked together and it worked together better if I was not thinking about, oh my God, I've got this condition called PTSD. Right. And I think that that's very smart of him um, because PTSD is such such a sort of, I think it's the new diagnosis. Everybody yeah. has PTSD, right? Um, uh, from, from every fucking thing that's ever happened to them in their lives. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, you, re- you read actual studies about you know, after 9-11, you know, therapists sort of reaching out to um, people who'd been uh, affected by the attacks. Mm -hmm. And then they found out that it didn't help them. Mm -hmm. It sort of made uh, these sort of therapeutic situations made a lot of them worse because they Mm -hmm. were sort of having to talk about it all of the time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so that's interesting to me, but can you talk a little bit more about the sort of body experience of, of the trauma of dealing with it and recovering through that? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, when I got out, I was extremely malnourished and in fact, I was protein deficient and that's the most informative thing any doctor told me, um, aside from the fact that I was okay. Otherwise, I mean, I didn't have any threatening relapse of malaria or whatever, which the, the tropical scientists and, and uh, doctors in, in Berlin were really interested in because I'd had malaria, but I didn't have the remnants of it. So the worst thing that was wrong with me was a protein deficiency. And that turned out to be really bad. I mean, a lot of the mental things I was suffering from could almost be traced back to some, this was my superficial, you know, web surfing mm-hmm. diagnosis, but a lot of things that were wrong with me mentally could also be traced back to amino acids and things like that. So once I realized I was protein deficient because I'd I'd had so little meat in my diet and so little of anything actually in Somalia, I um, started to eat properly and even drink protein shakes, you know, and at the same time I was going to the gym because I'd lost so much muscle mass. And so I thought, okay, I've got a certain way that I I need to get better in. And all that really worked. All that really helped. Um, you know, just as a standard better diet, but also focusing on that, that protein issue. Um, and it also helped that I really wanted to get better. I mean, I had that will so that, um, all those things sort of worked together. Once I 
started to exercise and started to do yoga regularly, which I had been doing in Somalia too, um, I, I improved pretty rapidly. And um, the physical improvements really t- started to take care of some of the mental things. So I was less easily overwhelmed as the weeks and months went by when I got out. Um, when I first got out, I was paranoid about everything. And I was easily overwhelmed by lots of people, including lots of, including just friends. And um, slowly I could, I could just deal with regular life again. So what did you do with your anger? That, that's a good question. I'm not sure I've done everything with my anger. I'm sure a lot of it's still there. Um, but it, I, I put some of it into the book for sure. Um, and uh, some other writing that I've done in the meantime. I, I've, um, um, I, you know what? I don't know. It's like I said, I think it's, I, I think it's there, but it's not as, um, debilitating as it was when I first got out. Mm-hmm. So that means I've worked through some of it, obviously. Um, have you tried screaming into a pillow? That's screaming my, into a pillow helps. My yeah. favorite. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. That, yeah. That helps now and then. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so did writing about it help oh, or did absolutely. you, did you even expect it to? Yeah, no, more than I expected to, expected it to, because I I don't think of writing as therapy. I think of writing as a you know, it's a it's an organizational problem. It's a structural problem. <laughs> you know, you sit down and you think about certain aspects of the book that have nothing to do with self expression. <clears throat> but um, once I started to read about various therapies, um, talk therapy is n- nothing else besides putting a whole lot of traumatic things into narrative order, and that's what I did with the book. So. Um, obviously that helped. I mean, once I was done, I was just that much more fluent with the material. I could talk about it in a way that wasn't halting and, and crippled, you know, mm-hmm. which is how, how it felt when I first got out. Um, but I have to say that the first draft of it was talking to the FBI. So the three, maybe four weeks of debriefing I did right out right afterwards was the first time I told the story and that was difficult at times I got really overwhelmed and I had to stop so um that alone helped that alone brought back a lot of the memories that I didn't even think I had you know I remembered a lot more than I realized and that made me realize I could do it again when I when I wrote the book um I I think that that by the way, the FBI wouldn't let me have that first draft. I asked for their transcript afterwards, and they're like, nope, that's evidence. <laughs> but it's your <laughs> evidence. It's my evidence, right, but they wouldn't let me um, let me take it as, a, as, as an aid to writing the book. <laughs> <laughs> as a book proposal, just hand it in to the publisher yeah, and be just, like, this is what I'm going to do. This is what happened, yeah. Um, no, it didn't work. I had to sit down and write a separate book proposal. God fucking damn it. Damn Anything it. to avoid writing a book proposal. Damn I swear it. to God. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So, so, you know, that narrative organization really actually helps. Um, the structural problem itself um, c- can be therapeutic for you to work through. And it, it seems like you've avoided a lot of the sort of hostage memoir cliches. Um, yeah, you must be sort of, I mean, God, there were a lot of hostage memoirs, um, in the years before yours. Um, and they're all kind of the same. Uh, Yeah. Um, how conscious of you were that, were you of that? Um, 
Not terribly conscious. I mean, I knew I didn't want to write just a quick hostage book, meaning here's what happened and here's some uh, some inspirational things, you know, on top of it. Um, I wanted to write a proper memoir about what what I'd gone through, which which means I was lucky to find a publisher who was going to let me do that. <clears throat> um, uh, I wasn't. I didn't sit down and say, "Oh, I'm going to avoid this or that cliche." Um, I had to think of a of a way to hold everything everything together in a in a logical way. So um, maybe that helped too. Not thinking about the cliches, just like I wasn't thinking about PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, you know, this is also a work of journalism, mm-hmm. um, and you were there in order to as a journalist um to write a story mm-hmm. um and so it doesn't fall into that sort of you know um oh i was just there and then this happened to me and you know um that oh, sort right. of that sort of thing um but it's so prevalent like there's a now there's an entire show on netflix called mm-hmm. captive like interviewing oh, people yeah. who've been held captive around the world anyway mm-hmm. um i'm kind of fascinated by the sort of reemergence of the captive narrative mm-hmm. um and then also how yours uh, avoids being that well l- l- let me ask you what which, which cliches do i avoid um you avoid a sort of innocence and mm-hmm. um a you humanize um the people around you so mm-hmm. it's not just about you, your own suffering yeah. and then there's not the arc of recovery after right. um the, the arc of recovery being um, finding something in um, Jesus or <laughs> uh, love or, um, you know, the, the redemptive romantic relationship or, right. um, or the therapist who helps you confront your trauma. Um, <laughs> it, everything is much more complicated than that. Yeah, it is a lot more complicated than that. I, um, it's it's not about no. The, you're right. The book is not about healing, but the book does suggest how I got over it. I mean, I mm-hmm. think I, I, I'm aware that the reader is going to lose interest as soon as I'm I'm free in the book. So I try to wrap things up, you know, pretty quickly. But I try to I try to indicate exactly how things went afterwards and sort of point the way. Um, I, you're right. The the uh, my getting kidnapped, you know, was, I, I had something to do with that. (laughs) In in other words, I went to Somalia, so I took a risk, you know, so I couldn't be innocent from the outset. And, um, that weighed on my mind while I was there. And those feelings of guilt were, were really important too. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that becomes a really important part of the story. And in fact, it couldn't, once I was captured, I don't think it could have been a strictly journalistic book, which is what I went there to write, precisely because I I had to think for days at a time about whether I was going to kill myself or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was important to bring material about my father and um, to discuss that because that was on my mind. I had just learned a year and a half before I went to Somalia that my father had killed himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he had died 30 years before, but I didn't know until 2010 that, that it was suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the distinction between healing and getting over it Um, Uh because, and I think it has to do with the narrative in the, in the same way that PTSD is a narrative of um, it puts boundaries around your experience um, and healing 
kind of does the same thing. It's a it's a sort of very structured narrative, whereas getting over it is just this kind of stumbling forward, which I think is how actually people experience. That's true. Getting over things for or, sure. Yeah, it's just life. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. life is just getting over it. Yeah, I agree with that. And the um, the the whole idea of healing has become an industry. And in that you know, I'm I'm not sure what I have to contribute to that industry, <laughs> but but I did heal. You know, I did I did got it. But it, you're right. It was a, a question of stumbling forward for about a year. I mean, I I wasn't back to full strength for about a year, and then uh, after that, I don't know. I I was after a year, I felt back physically more or less and mentally i still don't know <laughs> so you know it's well, it's good to keep an open mind about that <laughs> well by doing this it, this way obviously you've missed out on the opportunity to be paid a lot of money in order to tell some ladies how to heal i'm still trying traumas. to figure that out yeah <laughs> you ruined it you ruined it with your pitch you know you're doomed um I wanted I wanted to talk about this New York Times article I read about you mm-hmm. um, about this Facebook incident. Mm-hmm. Would you Would you like to explain the Facebook incident? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I can't say too much more than what's in the book already about it. But um, one one of my guard, one of my pirate guards, a guy named Mohammed Talil. Um, contacted me after I got out of Somalia. Uh, he wrote to me over Facebook. Um, we didn't become friends, but he messaged me. And um, it took me a couple of, th- two or four weeks or something like that to, for me to even notice his message. And at first, I didn't even want to write to him, you know. But since he was one of the kindest guards and one of the gentlest guards, which it's all described in, in the book, I decided I would write to him. And we carried on a conversation for a while. Um, uh, he he helped he helped verify a few facts in the book, and you know I bounced some things off of him. And um, naturally, I checked, verified some things that he told me, and that kind of thing. But um, he wound up helping with the book. He has also wound up in jail. Um, mm-hmm. He's he's been arrested now, so for his involvement in my. Uh, my captivity. Uh, since he was one of the nicer guys, uh, I told the New York Times I wasn't entirely happy that he was in jail. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to ask about. Um, yeah. how you felt about that? Yeah, uh, it's not it's not a full triumph. Let's put it that way. Um, I would f- I would feel a lot better if a, a couple of other guys were in jail. Mm. Uh, so we'll we'll see how it goes with Muhammad. It's still sort of early, and um, uh, I I just I just don't know how it's going to play out. Mm. Um, you wrote about forgiveness mm-hmm. and how that was helpful to you. Yeah. Um, do you think that was helpful in the sort of getting over it as well, or uh, just in the experience of the of the moment? R- uh, really important. I mean, what, well. Certainly important in Somalia because before I made a conscious decision to forgive the guards who were around me every day, I I woke up angry at them every day. You know, I woke up feeling resentful and 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 full of not just anger at them but also anger at myself. And forgiveness helps helped untie that knot or actually cut the knot entirely. And um, remembering to do that after I got out 
to with whoever it was, you know, um, certainly helped with recovery. And it's just a way to, a way to live now. Um, it doesn't mean I forgive everybody automatically or anything like that, but mm-hmm. you, I've learned how to do it. You know, that pattern is there. So um, it was a really important revelation while I was there that reordering my mind could actually help me um, live without you know, complete misery in a miserable situation. And it came from the Pope, right? This from yeah. something you heard from the Pope. Yeah, that was that. That actually was a, a, a that precipitated it. So I was listening to the radio here and there. I was listening to the BBC. I was listening to this weird music station from Oman, and then sometimes I listened to the Vatican radio. Early in the morning, I could get those three things on my show. <laughs> Vatican radio. Anyway, sorry. It's just it's true. No, yeah. when you disappear, when you go to like the furthest reaches of the <laughs> earth, what you can still get on your radio is the Vatican and the BBC World Service. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And one morning I was listening to the Vatican and uh, uh, they they report on the Pope. You know, obviously they're, they're a mouthpiece for the Pope, but they still, you know, pose it as a reporter telling you what the Pope said that morning. And so the report explained the, the Pope's homily about forgiveness. And um, <laughs> you can actually hear him talking in the, in the background because they had a recording of him giving the homily in Italian. And uh, his image was something like, you know, when you're, and at night, you you you're aware of your many sins and your many shortcomings. Like you can see all the stars, and you, in the background, you could hear him say "Tante Stelle, Tante Stelle," all the stars, right? And then he used this image of God's mercy as the sun, which would rise in the morning and banish all the stars. And I thought, wow, that was really powerful to me as a captive, you know, in this incredibly lonely situation. And the the idea was that. Um, mercy alone could get rid of those. And if you passed on God's mercy and acted um, forgiving towards people who maybe didn't even deserve it, um, you know, there was something there. And that's what I took from it. And it was very, very powerful. Um, and I'm a lapsed Catholic. I, I was at the time and I, I still am. But um, I think there is something about forgiveness and about that sort of transcendence of um, not just your own failings, but other people's. Um, that's essential to almost any religion. Um, what else is on Vatican City Radio, if <laughs> I ask? <laughs> um, a lot of things. So I, I think in the morning it was really just about the Pope's doings. <laughs> just whatever <laughs> the Pope is up to that day. What he's wearing. <laughs> what he's wearing, yeah. Where he's headed. Uh, so if the Pope was going to South America or something like that, you heard all about the preparations and then you heard about his tour. Um, that was very exciting. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember. Um, I don't remember other things that weren't the Pope. I mean, if the Bishop, I think sometimes if there was a corruption scandal, they might like spend two minutes on it. <laughs> and then back to the wardrobe. And, back, and yeah. then back to the Pope. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Back to sort of like the the complications of your book, um, which is what I like about it. Um, you know, when we read sort of about Somali pirates, there it tends to be there are two ways that they are written about. 
Um, One is they are heartless terrorists and the Mm -hmm. other ones, they are victims of, um, uh, you know, uh, economic and political situation outside of their control. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And you don't really fall for either sort of stereotype, which I enjoy. Yeah. I blow up both of those. Yeah. Because the typical story, the typical um, left-wing idea about Somali pirates is that they're only pirates because international fishing boats have come in and taken their fish. Uh, that is certainly how Somali piracy got its start, but it's certainly also not what pirates were up to um, when they captured me. Uh, they were not defending their coastline when they kidnapped me, and they were arguably they were not even defending their coastline anymore once we started to hear about them in the news. So once they were a headline because they were capturing cargo ships they weren't capturing fishing ships anymore or uh, exclusively fishing ships. So in other words, they became famous because they stopped just defending their coastline and started to do something more high profile and uh, criminal. Um, but it's, it's true that, early, that in the 90s, early in those years after the Somali Civil War brought down the, their last sort of strongman president, or let's say the president fell and precipitated the war, um, the Somalis couldn't defend their coastline, and there was a lot of uh, illegal fishing coming in that was really taking away uh, um, uh, a livelihood from some coastal clans. The thing is that Somalia as a whole uh, doesn't rely on seafood and isn't really a seafaring culture. Um, and that's one point of the title, actually, the desert and the sea. There is a difference between the Somalis who live on the coast and the Somalis who live inland, and the dominant culture is the inland culture. And most of the pirates I met came from inland. So in other words, they were um, gun-trained militiamen from the desert bush rather than um, poor, poor fishermen who had been robbed of a livelihood uh, from the coast. So um, that was certainly one cliche that I had to get rid of. And the other one, yeah, is is that they're just evil, somehow, um, you know, greedy terrorists. Uh, they are in it for the money, so they've learned to be greedy because they belong to this criminal gang. Um, they're not terrorists um, because they will try not to kill you, uh, which was not terribly reassuring to me as a as a captive because I knew there were all sorts of ways that they could accidentally kill me or just let me die if I got malaria. Um, but no, there were there were humans there, and, um, and even the guys that didn't want to talk to me, you know, it was it was obvious they had weird sort of conflicting motivations and the guys that could talk to me and the the guys I got to know, um, you know, turned out to be interesting. And I hope that they, that I rendered those characters in, in some way that's worthwhile. And what interested you in Somalia in the first place? Well, I mean, all those contradictions were interesting to me. I was sort of aware of them before I even went, but um, I wanted to first on a sort of theoretical level, I wanted to know why, uh, order had broken down in a corner of the world um, to the point where there were pirates because we we had gone more than two centuries without a very serious pirate problem in uh, you know on most of the ocean um, we had we had navies to keep things more or less in line and piracy was this old archaic crime all of a sudden that was um, a problem again and so that was interesting to me. I knew some of the answers, but not all of them. Um, And it was also interesting to me that uh, America had started um, as kind of a 
weird part of the world that um, produced pirates about 300 years ago, before it was even America. Well, it was just a sort of backwater and a colony from um, the British crown's point of view. Um, Some seafarers on the Atlantic seaboard went out and did extremely ruthless things um, for money. And they did it not just along the American coast, like Blackbeard. Um, he was just a coastal mugger compared to some of those colonial pirates. Uh, they did it in long-distance um, adventures out to actually the Horn of Africa. So 300 years ago, you had um, American colonial uh, captains and their crews um, who were actually sacking Muslim ships um, in around the Horn of Africa and the in the Gulf of Aden and so on, um, just because they they wanted money. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, if America could could recover from that, well, maybe so can Somalia after some time. And you know, I wanted to see what what kinds of things could be um, developed in Somalia so that you know these young gunmen didn't have to become pirates. Um, and that was the right approach, actually. But um, you know, it turns out that the guys that I went there to write about weren't weren't entirely thrilled to see me. So. <laughs> <laughs> it, it happens. It happens, yeah. <laughs> it happens to writers everywhere. Um, <laughs> um, I was wondering if you, I mean, probably you're sick of talking about this, but it was such a surprise to me to learn, you know, um, through through your experience, basically. But um, the, you know, the, the hardline American policy of um, we don't negotiate and we don't pay for hostages mm-hmm. um, with the idea that if that is how America protects its citizens because right. surely everyone knows there around the world that America doesn't pay for hostages. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, um, you know, the people that took you hostage did not seem, did not seem to know that. Right. Yeah. That was an astonishing sort of um, moment. I mean, uh, I think everyone in America, certainly every journalist who goes out into dangerous parts of the world knows that the American government has this hardline policy against paying ransoms. And um, the more they announce that from the State Department podium or wherever, um, the more we think the word goes out and discourages groups from capturing Americans. Um, Now, I was traveling in uh, Somalia on a German passport, but I I happen to know that the pirates had researched me beforehand, so they knew I was an American. They knew I was an American writer, and um, that did not discourage them. So, um, uh, surprisingly, um, most of the guards didn't even know about this hardline American policy. (laughs) And... Of course, there are some exceptions to it, and you can you can imagine how they might be cynical about such things. But 18 months into my captivity, um, one of the guards named Boshko, who I had a bit of a relationship with, um, came sort of charging into my room and very angry and agitated about something. And I think one of the Somali negotiators had just told him maybe to sort of temper his expectations for what he was going to get. Um, as a payout, said, well, there's going to be no money from Washington. You know, Washington is not going to pay for Michael. And Boshko came in and he was upset and he told me, and he said, you know, n- money, Washington, no, blah, blah, blah. Why? I'm like, Boshko, it's, I've been captive for 18 months now. You don't even know that that's American policy. I can't, you know, it was, 
<laughs> it was a very discouraging <laughs> moment for me too. I said, you know, we can't pay for everybody. And I gave him the whole rationale. You know, if the government pays for everybody who's kidnapped, then there's going to be more kidnappers, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he just, it didn't register with him because he would hear these fantastic sums of money thrown around on the radio and couldn't imagine why America wouldn't pay for one of its own. Um, now, the discouraging thing to me was not that America wasn't going to pay money. I knew that from the outset. The discouraging thing to me was that there were people in the world whose business it was to kidnap people like me, and they had never heard of that policy. Yeah. They had simply never heard of it. So in other words, if we think it's a deterrent, um, that's because we watch the right channels on TV. <laughs> you know, Somali pirates don't. They don't necessarily hear those, those pronouncements from the State Department. Um, and a lot of people in that business just don't even, don't even think about that. They just capture people and they wait to see what kind of money they're going to get. It's really ad hoc. Um, so if, if we, th there, there are lots of, lots of ways to, I mean, it doesn't mean we should start paying ransoms out of government coffers. I don't think that either, but if we think that the policy is good because it keeps us safe, that's wrong. You know, it's not a de facto deterrent. And so then what some sort of support did you get from the government if it wasn't in the form of cash? Well, that was the surprising part. Um, my mother had actually very good support from the FBI, a very strong support, um, just in the sense that they uh, came over to her to her place when I got captured, um, and they explained what was going on. Um, you know, they gave her some information that uh, the military had gathered about where I was and that kind of thing. Um, precisely because pirates aren't terrorists, because the whole case was not classified as a terrorist case by the U.S. government, um, I think the FBI could tell my mom a little bit more um, than some families here. I think the Foley family, when James Foley was in the hands of IS before he got beheaded, um, was frustrated by the amount of stuff that the FBI could say. Um, mm -hmm. And that was because it was a terrorist case. And it, that was obvious from the well, it was obvious early on, let's put it that way. And um, because it was just a criminal case for me with pirates, um, the the FBI could be pretty frank with my mom about a lot of stuff. And um, she got support from the government up, you know, up to um, actual payment. Um, once my actual release had to be organized, um, she did have to hire a... Um, a, a bush pilot to come get me and that kind of thing, but they could find that person for her. You know, they knew how to find these these people who were capable. Um, so they had the right connections and and that kind of thing. Um, but they, of course, they couldn't just splash up for the money. That that was um, that was something she had to arrange by herself. Mm -hmm. How's your mom? How's she doing? <laughs> she's, she's doing very well, thank you. I'm I'm back in LA partly to see her now and then. And um, also to surf a little bit more. Um, and she's doing really well. <laughs> um, I noticed in the, uh, in the he, you know, in the, in the trailer for your Sweetness and Blood book, yeah. you know, you make a reference to surfing in Somalia, but probably yeah. you didn't get the opportunity to actually no, that do was any surfing in Somalia. Yeah, that, that yeah. was a very bad joke. Yeah, it no, like I, dramatic I, foretelling. <laughs> I had Samoya on my mind when I did that video, but it, it, um, I certainly wasn't going to go there and surf. 
Um, I, uh, I, yeah, people have asked me how the waves were. When I, <laughs> when I, when I did a re- read, it, my first reading for the book was here in, um, in the South Bay in LA. And uh, naturally, a couple of people in the audience said, so how are the waves? Um, I, I didn't, so my glasses were broken almost as soon as I was captured. So uh, I didn't, couldn't see the waves once the pirates actually put me on the water. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see anything. But, um, okay, I could see a few things. Once they put me on a ship, I could feel the swells going into the ship, and I could see sometimes the waves crashing against rocks or something on the beach off in the distance. But it didn't tell me very much about how the waves were. So, frankly, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I have heard of some daredevil people going up from northern Kenya to southern Somalia to try and, catch, to try and say they surfed in Somalia. But at the moment, that's a really stupid idea. And how is getting back to surfing after all of this? I mean, um, you know, you're back in California and probably not good surfing in Berlin, but now no, that you're... Terrible in Berlin. So Berlin was a really good place to recover because it's so quiet. Um, mm-hmm. I think I would have been overwhelmed to come to L.A. or New York or something uh, right afterwards. And so I'm glad I didn't. But um, I mean, in the immediate weeks afterwards. Um, Berlin, in spite of the fact that for some reason, all my nostalgia in, in Somalia was for California. But I, once I was back in Berlin, I was really glad to be there because it felt very comfortable mm-hmm. um, and an easy place to recover in. Once I tried to surf for the first time, I also felt just, I mean, the first day I went surfing, luckily there weren't any waves. All I could do was paddle, and go out in the water and then come back and feel a bit refreshed, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really nice. And that was the beginning of this realization that actually going out in the water was very therapeutic. And um, once I got strong enough to surf properly, every time I surfed, I felt strong in a way that didn't go back. You know, I didn't backslide. Um, so I realized I had to do it a little more often. <laughs> um, it seems like surfing is good for your your mental stability too though i mean you know from knowing you not from your book but yeah um, for sure you feel you just feel washed out once you go out there and also once you get on a wave if you're not in the moment if you're not focused on what's going on right then and then you're going to (laughs) fall so uh, there's there's something meditative about it even though it's very active Um, and uh, i think mentally that's important too Mm. And so how you wrote the book and that helped, um, but how is publishing the book? Because that's a whole other creature. Like, yeah. um, and going and doing press about it and taking questions about it. How's that been? Right. Well, luckily that was the order of events. So luckily I, I had to do press about it only after I wrote it. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to do it the other way around. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to do it all that quickly, you know, if we had written a crap book in six months or something like that then i had to go do press about it that wouldn't have worked either um if i uh so far it's been good so far it's been great the but a lot of the stresses of publishing a book um just uh, would not have been you know even before you get to the press but but going through edits and that kind of thing i just wouldn't have been able to do that in the first year um so it's good that it took it took a little while um so far it's been great you know, talking about it is also therapeutic, just like writing about it. Um, I do have a daily limit. I can't do too many, too much in one day, or otherwise I get really sick of it or, or actually overwhelmed. Um, but so far, the publicity has been fine. 
And you talked to Joe Rogan about it. I and did. all of his his bro audience. How I was did. that? Yeah, it was fine. Joe, yeah. Um, he didn't read the book beforehand. Uh, that that became clear. Yeah, I could tell. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Joe was, was really remarkable. Uh, and he kept me engaged. And that's, that's not true of every, every interviewer. So he's, he's got something going on there. Um, yeah. He has a really interesting studio in uh, in the San Fernando Valley. It's a it's almost entirely red inside, and it's mostly an MMA studio. So he can, um, but it's so long he can practice archery in there too. <laughs> 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 oh, Joe Rogan secrets. Um, yeah. uh, so, what are you working on now? The typical um, writer question. Well, I'm, that's another reason I'm in L.A. I'm writing a book that's set in L.A. And it's a book that I actually started in Somalia. So uh, when I was in Somalia, I, I had drones on the brain. And when I wasn't taking notes about what was actually going on, I learned fairly quickly not to keep a regular journal because my notes kept getting confiscated. I um, sat down and dreamed up a novel. Um, so I, I started a satirical novel about drones set in California <laughs> and the pirates, when they started to check my, my writing, um, on this, this was the third go round of notes of, of Mike with a pen and paper. All the other notes had been confiscated. They would check what I was writing and they said, is this still the made up story and about the fish or something like that? <laughs> and, then they're like, and handed me back the notebook. I left Somalia with six notebooks. And so I've typed all those up and I'm, I'm elaborating the novel now. Um, and I hope it will be an interesting drone satire. Um, I, I just got a residency to McDowell for it. That's new. So. Oh, that's wonderful. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. So mm -hmm. that's something that actually has very little to do with Somalia. Um, um, that will hopefully also be interesting to people. <laughs> all right. Good. This was good. Thanks. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original Dog. podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe Dog. to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.